Okay, I think it's working. I think it's working. All right. Okay, so uh, good morning. Thank you for everybody who participated in the campaign. And as mentioned before, and I'm going to mention it again because we're recording and it's going to go online, charity with a D C H A R D Y dot com forward slash R S T is the campaign page. And it's still open. We officially finished the campaign last night, but the matches are still matching the donations coming in. So uh, charity.com forward slash RST, you can still give, and uh, that helps us do what we do. Okay, so last week, Baruch Hashem, we finished chapter one. And we were left with some questions. First of all, we introduced in chapter one the idea of Tzadik Rosh and Benini. And we said these personae are somehow important in understanding the whole nature of our conflict, um, our duality, our contradiction. But we don't know yet how, and we're not going to find out yet today either. Another thing that we sort of left unresolved was the discussion of the two souls from uh, Harav Chaim Vital. And we spoke about part of it, we spoke about one of those souls. Do you remember the one soul we spoke about in the end of chapter one? I think the animal soul. Yeah, it is the animal soul, although we did not call it Nefesh Abamas. We described it as a Nefesh of Klippa and Sitra Achra. We said it's in the blood and it is effectively the vitality which animates the body. But it's not just a life force, it also is a drive, it has a will of its own. And that will expresses itself in various ways. Some of them are as character defects. And we talked about the different four elements and how they manifest themselves as different character defects. And we said because it's klipas noiga, it's the type of negativity, which has admixtures of good. Um, it also has some positive character traits, which are native to the Jewish person, not something that you have to work on or acquire. So it's not really anything that you've accomplished. But uh, we spoke about the native traits of uh, bashful and compassionate and uh, doing kindness. And that that's also present in this, uh, this basic first soul. <coughs> so now, in chapter 2, we get the other half of that picture, which is the second soul. So he starts off, Perig base. Let's look inside. Perig base. The nefesh hashen is b'yisrael. The second soul of the Jew, he chelik elekami mal mamash, is literally... A portion of God above. Chelik Elikami Mal is a Lush and a Pasuk from Eov, from the book of Eov. Somebody once uh, wrote to me and they said, How did the Alter Rebbe take the liberty to use those words of the scripture out of context? And um, he said, That's why I have a problem with, with Hasidic teachings, because they take verses and they use them in ways that are not the, the not true to the original context. So I, this was an email. So I responded to the guy. I said, uh, first of all, 
the Alter Rebbe is not giving an interpretation of that verse in Eov. He's not saying that's pshat of the verse in Eov. He's using the Lashon HaPasek. He's using the expression, the phrase that the scripture uses. Second of all, um, if you think this is uniquely Hasidic, I'll tell you that the Vilna Gon also uses the expression mal to describe the Jewish soul. And that it goes back even further than either the Alter Rebbe or the Vilna Gon. The addition of the Alter Rebbe, if you want to say the Alter Rebbe was mechadish anything, is the word mamash. <laughs> because the adjective mamash literally, mamash means literally, is, is, is added on. The turn of phrase from, from Eov is chelek elekami mal. But the Alter Rebbe adds the word mamash. And what we have been taught about that word is that it means even in embodiment, even in a state of mamash, this state of being a chelek elekami mal is retained. So it's not just saying it's a chelek elekami mal. Mamash, really, literally. Like, I'm not joking around. I mean it literally. Mamash. It's, I mean, it also means that. But the, the meaning of mamish is also that even when this soul is embodied and it's in a state of mamushus, it's in physicality, it retains this quality of being a portion of God above. Now, why is it called a nefesh hashenis? If it's a portion of God above, I don't know, to me that sounds primary. Call that the first soul. Why call it the second soul? So, simple answer you could give is, well, he's just talking about the order in which he presented it. We learned about the animal soul at the end of chapter 1. We're learning about the godly soul in the beginning of chapter 2. So it means the first soul we learned about and the second soul we're learning about. Okay, but then that begs the question, why did we learn it in that order? <laughs> so, I'll I'll tell you a couple explanations. One is that, you know, we're talking about the story of your life. So everyone's born and they have a nefjabamis, they have that drive for self-preservation. That's why the baby cries at 3 a.m. without any guilt. Because if I need to be taken care of, I need to be taken care of. But you're not morally accountable in Judaism until much later. When do you become morally accountable? Bar mitzvah, bas mitzvah. So a boy 13, a girl 12. Why are we morally accountable at that later age? Because that's how long it takes the nefesh alakis, the godly soul, to be integrated enough into our consciousness that we have enough access to it to actually make moral choices instead of doing whatever is comfortable for us. So when we talk about first soul and second soul, you know, we're talking, we're talking about the, the story of your life. The first soul that you were in touch with and the second soul that you got in touch with later. Shlema Melech, King Solomon talks about this, by the way, in, uh, in Kehelis and Ecclesiastes, which we bring in chapter 9 later on in Tanya, about the parable about the Melech Zokinuxil, the old foolish king. He says that the, the animal soul is called the old foolish king. Why is he called old? Old because relative to the story of your life, you met him first. He was there all along. So he's called old. But he's foolish because he's, he's an animal soul. 
and uh, the godly soul is like the baby, the newbie. He just arrived in town. So that's one explanation about, about first soul and second soul. Yeah. When you said it takes till Barabbas makes the prayer to be fully integrated. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I've heard like where God's soul enters. At, you're not saying it, it doesn't enter in Barabbas, but it's... Well, it, 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 the question is, is it something that happens like instantaneously at that moment? It's incremental and gradual, but as far as being integrated enough to the point where somebody could actually be expected to use it, would be bar and bas mitzvah. Well, the first stage of the first stage of entering. What does entering mean? Because we're talking about spiritual entities, so it's not like a person enters a room. It's not like a physical thing that is located inside of another physical thing. What it, when we say the soul is in the body, what we mean is that its influence is discernible on a conscious level. So. Um, if a person has a desire, you know, the little kid wants to eat the cookie, and it's very, very hard for the child to think selflessly, let me stop and make a bracha before I eat the cookie, because that runs counter to uh, self-preservation. So to really be, to, to have enough access to the consciousness of your godly soul that we could expect you to be able to transcend your drive for self-preservation, that requires the godly soul to be integrated to a certain extent. It's obviously, it's not binary. It's not like either it is integrated or it's not integrated. Even in the process of integration, there are, pro there are stages along the way. And then even after bar and bas mitzvah, there are stages of further integration. So the integration concept, I guess, but the question is more like, is there a, a beginning point? In so bris mila for a boy is the no, beginning okay. of the integration. Of the of the soul into the body, marriage is considered the biggest phase of integration, but bar and bas mitzvah, for practical purposes, is sufficient to hold the person accountable at that point. Okay, so another reason why we call it the second soul, the first soul and second soul, actually is connected to this week's parsha. It's kind of nifty. Thank you, Paula, for dealing with the flashing light without calling any attention to it. And I want to mention, because last week we had a whole big distraction about it, and you guys were so calm just now, I would actually fly with you guys. Because I know <laughs> if there would be turbulence, nobody would shriek. It's always, that's the terrifying thing. It's never the turbulence, it's the person screaming because of the turbulence. But, yeah. What was it? Where are we going? Where are we, we're going to take a... We're, Thailand? Why Thailand? Okay. <laughs> Why not? Why not Thailand? Yes, when we finish time here, we're going to take a trip. Great. Yeah. We we're going to go to the oil for sure. Yeah. But she wants to fly somewhere. I don't know. Go to Hadditch or something. Okay. Yeah, why not? We could do that. Yeah. I'm going to invite the YouTube people. Sure. We'll take a vote at the end of the class. In two or three years, when we finish the Tanya, we'll, we're taking a class. Taking a trip. Right? Anyways, so that was really great how nobody got distracted by the flashing light. Okay, um, it's always nifty how things work out. This week's Parsha, we just started it yesterday. We just started it, those who learn the daily Chumash. So, yes, very good. So, yesterday was Rishon, today is Sheni, Avayishlach. 
So Vayishlech Yankim Malachim, Jacob sends angels, angelic messengers, to his brother Esau, and he says, hey, brother, are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? What was he trying to do? He's trying to unite Toihu and Tikkun. Yankim Avinu represents Tikkun, the orderly process of following the rules, slow incremental success, and uh, Esav is toihu, is chaos, is frenetic energy that can't really be contained in vessels. He's like the overnight success and everything that comes with that for good and for bad. So we're taught that Jacob and Esau are the godly soul and the animal soul respectively. Toihu is higher than Tikkun. The world of chaos precedes the world of order. And I don't mean chronologically because all of this stuff is pre-chronological, but I mean as far as if you can imagine a process that is not a chronological process, but think about there's a, a first draft of creation where the writer is getting out all of his ideas in a flurry, but it's unsustainable, it's too much, it's too much revelation. Because for someone to read something, you gotta, you gotta, you know, whittle it down. You gotta carve back some of that revelation. You gotta make it more uh, palatable. You have to make it more understandable. So you gotta break it up. You gotta take some stuff out. You gotta, well, that, you know, we're gonna remove that. That's not really for. Uh, that's too confusing. So imagine a first draft of creation, which is like this burst of creativity, which was necessary as part of the process, but it's too much creativity, so it's unsustainable. And that's where the Shvirus HaKelem, the shattering of, of the vessels, emanates from, because there was too much creative energy and it broke the containers. At any rate, Toyu is this, le this level, which is, which is higher than Tikkun. Esav emanates from Toyu. Yankiv emanates from Tikkun. Internally, each one of us has two souls. One of them is from Tikkun, and one of them is from Toihu. The animal soul is from Toihu. That's why it is so wild, because it's from this, <clears throat> this lofty level of, of wild energy that is so um, unconstrained and uncontainable that... Uh, it ends up not really working out as a system for creation, but it's got a certain, it has a certain quality that if, if you can manage to harness it, is really, really valuable. So we have this idea of a first soul, the animal soul being this, in its source at least, being this really lofty, wild, unharnessed spiritual energy. And what it teaches us is that, I mean, why is this idea important? Is that even when we start to learn how to rein in the animal and to not let it call the shots and not let it direct our lives, because to let the animal run our lives would mean to to face destruction, it would mean to make our, our, our lives into absolute uh, to, to, to havoc. And yet, we're not trying to get rid of this animal, we're just trying to rein it in. 
And if we can manage to redirect its energy, which is the ultimate goal, then we will have the best of both worlds. So you should understand that the godly soul is the second soul, second meaning, not just that you get it later in life, but second meaning, if you look at its spiritual source, it is actually lower in, in its source, its original source, than this animal soul. And, and in fact, you know, we have a Hasidic concept that something that comes from a higher source, when it falls down, it falls lower. Yeah, the, the, the parable often is of a wall, a stone wall. So if the stone wall topples, then the row of stones that was at the top when the, stone, when the wall was standing straight ends up farthest from the wall. So because the animal soul starts so lofty, it comes down so low. Same thing with Asaph, and that's what Yitzchak recognized in Asaph and why he loved him and wanted to bless him because he thought he could access that energy. At any rate, so that, that's the idea of first soul and second soul. But let's find out a little bit more. Yeah? Say louder, please. The animal soul comes from higher, falls lower. That's why down here, it is expressed as these base instincts. It's clearly in its, in its manifested state, it's lower. It's not some altruistic spiritual drive. It's this low, crass drive. But the reason it expresses itself in that low manner is because it actually came and descended from, from higher. Yeah? So far, so good? Okay. So now we're going to find out a little bit more about this godly soul. We, we said that it's a chelik elikamimal, and the Alter Rebbe adds mamash, even in a body. Kameshikosov, like it says, ve'yipach ba'apov nishmas chayim. And he breathed, God breathed, in his nostrils, meaning Adam's nostrils, a living soul. This soul is likened to breath. God's breath. Or like we say, and you breathed it within me. We say that in the morning blessings. We say, Hashem, this neshama that you gave me is pure. You gave me this pure soul. You created it. You formed it. And you blew it into me. You blew it into me. So this soul is likened to breath. And neshama itself, the word, is related to neshima, which means breath. So why is this an important um, metaphor that we think of the soul as breath? We're going to talk about that a little bit. So like the Holy Zayar says, man de nafach, one who blows, mitoiche nafach, blows from his in, innerness. Pirush, what does that mean? Mitoichiyusei, from his innerness, from his depth, shetoichiyus pinimius, that the inner depth of his vitality comes out when he blows 
strongly. I had a thing that I developed when my oldest daughter, who's now 20, when she was like maybe seven or eight, she had a bunch of classmates. That's when we started it. We means me and my wife. We started this thing where we would do Tanya lessons for kids. And so we started it when my oldest daughter was maybe seven or eight. We had her classmates come over. And then since then, I've done it for many, many kids groups. Um, you guys, some of you have taken my class before know about some of my hands-on Tanya demonstrations because some of you saw, I don't know, did you know that this, the first version of this class that we did here in the Five Towns, you know, is on my website. It's on soulwords.org. You go soulwords.org forward slash Tanya, and the whole class is there. And you can hear some of your questions. By the way, I get great comments from people like, the, the questions in that class are brilliant. People love it, by the way. And I want, you want to know something else people say to me? They're like, it's so cute I hear kids playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I told them, yeah, we paid those kids to make that noise. Okay, so I don't know if you guys ever saw, but the class for chapter 29, at the end, yeah, go check it out on soulwords.org forward slash Tanya. Go check out class 29 at the end of 29 I'm blowing stuff up like real real fire making explosions did you guys ever see that you guys should really check it out so I'm making explosions with fire I made a simulated uh, grain silo explosion anyways that why am I telling you this that was one of the Tanya hands-on demonstrations that I created for uh, for kids yeah so you check it out chapter 29 um, blowing stuff up. The hands-on demonstration for chapter two, I'll tell you what we did. We had a, something called an oscilloscope. And what it does is it measures sound and it represents it visually as a, as a line. So if you're talking, I mean you could set it to different levels of sensitivity, but when you're talking, so the line goes up. And if it's silent, then the line plummets, flat lines. So what I did is I called up two volunteers to stand up in front of the group. These are kids. And I had one girl stand here, one girl stands there. And I say, we're going to have a contest, an endurance contest. One of you is going to blow bubbles. And I gave her a cup with like uh, water and a straw. I think even at one point we got it really, really fancy and we had like a ping pong ball so that you could really, you could see the ping pong ball bobbing around. But I said, your job is just to blow bubbles, okay? Then there's another girl. Okay, your job is to talk into this little uh, oscilloscope to the mic. And it's going to read your sound waves of your voice. And your job is just to keep that oscilloscope, to keep that monitor, to keep the lines jumping. And if you stop talking, then the lines will go flat. Okay, so basically, can you picture this? You have two girls standing in the front, and one is trying to keep the bubbles going by blowing into a straw. And the other is trying to keep the oscilloscope line jumping by talking. And the, the contest is, who can keep it up the longest? 
and always, but they don't know. They always, they, 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 get, they have bravado. They're like, well, I could do this. They, they, I could blow bubbles forever, right? It doesn't matter if you have the biggest girl against the smallest girl. They think, they think it matters, like, who's going up against whom. It, do, it doesn't matter. The talker will always be able to go forever, and the one blowing the bubbles will get tired. Some, some, some take a minute, some take two minutes, but eventually you cannot continue blowing bubbles. Talking, I do it all the time. I talk for hours and hours and hours and hours on end all the time. And the reason that you can talk and talk and talk and talk, but blowing bubbles will tire you out in a minute or two, is because physiologically where the air is coming from. When you're talking, when you're talking, you are not drawing air from the depths. I mean, maybe, maybe an opera singer or something like, maybe Pavarotti, I don't know. But regular talking, the air is, you're not drawing from the depths of the air source from your lungs in order to talk. You can breathe rather shallow and still talk. But when you're blowing, you're expending the air from deep within, and you have to refill it deep within, and that's why it's tiring. So here's the deal. We know that Hashem creates through speech. I say creates present tense. Hashem creates through speech. But Yemer Lakim and God said... Let there be light. And there was light. So in Bereshus, in the Genesis account, it describes God as speaking the world into being. Or like we say in Davening, Blessed is he who spoke and the world came into being. God speaks the world into being. And those who learn with me, those who, uh, remember, that was one of the classes that we did here, at one point, remember we were learning we were learning about the Isis, the 22 letters of the Aleph base describe basic building blocks of creative energy and God creates the world by arranging those building blocks in a manner that we call divine speech. So every single thing in the world is a product of God's speech. He speaks it into being. He calls it, he names it, and it comes into being. There is one exception to this. Everything in the world is a product of God's speech. There's one entity which is a product of God's breath. The neshama. The nefesh, ho'elakis, the godly soul. It is considered not godly speech, but godly breath. And the idea here is that just like the Al-Tarebbe says in the name of the Zayar, that breath means it's coming from the toichius and the penimius. It's coming from the inner depth. In other words, the neshama is an expression of God's innerness. The neshama is, in many ways, an extension of God's own selfhood. Everything is a creation of God. The neshama is an extension of God, or God expressing himself 
not by making something, but by being something. So we're talking about a totally different type of entity, a unique, uh, a unique entity, unlike anything else. And breath is one analogy that we use, breath as opposed to speech, is one analogy that we use to begin to appreciate what this, what this entity is. Yeah? I read somewhere that the word abracadabra comes from avarech yeah. yeah. as I speak, I will create. Yeah, that's right, because the original vaudeville uh, magicians were Jews, and they, they used to say abracadabra, the stage magicians. Yeah, it comes from Ara uh, Aramaic. Yeah. yeah, everything comes from the juice. So one analogy is, is uh, breath. There's another analogy that helps to round out the picture of the identity of the, the second soul. You see where we are right after the colon? Likewise, by way of allegory, metaphorically speaking, the thought of the souls of the Jewish people arose to God's mind. Like it says, God refers to the Jewish people as my son, my firstborn, the Jewish people. You are children to the Lord your God. What is this idea of rising to the mind? And what is this idea of being a son or a child? Pirush, this means... Just like a son comes from the brain of the father. We're going to get into a little bit of Kabbalistic physiology in a moment. Just like the son derives from the brain of the father. Let's just finish the sentence. So too. So to speak, neshamas kol ish Yisrael, the soul of every Jewish person, comes from the thought and the wisdom of Hashem, that he is wise, but not in the noble sense of wisdom, but rather he and his wisdom are one. So there's a lot of explanation required here. You have to understand both the mushal and the nimshal. Usually, usually we use a mushal because you understand the mushal already and to, to help you understand the nimshal. You understand the way, usually a metaphor is you make a reference which is already understandable. It's not the thing that you actually want to talk about, but it's similar to the thing that you actually want to talk about. And it's more familiar. So you make a reference to something familiar, 
and the person says, yeah, I understand that, and you say, okay, well, there's an aspect of that familiar concept which exists in this new unfamiliar concept. Just sort of bring over your understanding of the unfamiliar, uh, your understanding of the familiar to your, to your new understanding of this unfamiliar thing. And that's why a metaphor is effective. Are you guys all following what I'm saying? Okay, what do you do when the metaphor isn't familiar? <clears throat> so it's probably not, yeah. So it's probably not the way you learned procreation in biology class. Um, so we need to explain a little bit of this Kabbalistic physiology. The, the concept of the ben, the son, is nimshech memayach ho'av, is drawn down from the brain of the father, is both a spiritual and a physical concept. What it means is that ultimately the reproductive power of the father, and we're not being sexist by saying father, 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 as opposed to mother, because father and mother have distinct roles in reproduction. Everybody knows that. That's undeniable. Right now we're focusing on the father's role. The father's role is to provide a tiny, tiny package of code, of information, which is unpacked and developed within the mother and ultimately becomes articulated as an entire complete human being. This phenomenon of a tiny essential point, a tiny speck of information being developed into a complete human being. In other words, um, building a person out of, out of a cell. This is an expression of the essence of the father. What do I mean by the essence? What I mean is, for instance, a child could inherit from a father a talent that the father himself never developed. So the father never touched a piano, so he can't play piano. And yet, the father inherited from his great-great-great-great-grandfather the skills to play the piano. He never developed it, so he doesn't have it. And yet, this same father's own son can inherit the piano playing skills from his father who can't play the piano. Why? Because when you inherit your genetic code from your parents, you're not getting what they were able to display and manifest, you're getting their essence, which is everything, even the potential that was never actualized. So the idea of reproduction is there's a transmission of essence. And what is the medium through which that essence is transmitted? The, what we call tipas mayachoav, the drop that comes from the father's brain. Now you're going to say, okay, I get what you mean when you're talking about the drop. You're talking about the seminal drop. You're talking about a cell. You're talking about a cell which contains genetic code. I get that. That sort of is consistent with my understanding of biology. But why are you saying it's from the brain? There is a joke here, but I'm not going to go for it. Um, so the Alter Rebbe actually speaks about this in Taira Ur, not in Tanya. He speaks about it in Taira Ur. Uh, 
and he says that obviously we don't mean that there's physical pieces of brain being transmitted as the reproductive cells. What we mean is that the energy that is transmitted through the reproductive cell originates in <clears throat> the, the father as brain energy. In other words, in the father himself, his essence is his brain, which is why you see that the brain controls the entire body. The brain is connected to the entire body and knows what's going on in the entire body. So the brain represents the essence within one organism. When that organism procreates and reproduces and passes on its essence, it's passing on its brain, so to speak. Negative as well as positive traits, what's now? Everything, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And doesn't the father determine the gender, the chromosome, the Y chromosome? I have no idea. <clears throat> I have no idea. That's not, I don't, I don't know. <clears throat> yeah. No, it's good. It, 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 <clears throat> the son, it could be a daughter. It, it could be a daughter. It, it's not a gender-specific. When we say Ben, it doesn't have to be a son. You can imagine a daughter. Because the same, the same mechanics apply, if, whether it's a son or it's a daughter. The point is, the muscle, the metaphor here, which is supposed to be, <clears throat> which is supposed to say, the reason we're using a metaphor is you're supposed to say, oh yeah, I know that thing. And then, we're supposed to get into the deep concept that is harder to understand. I just understand that in a, in a 2021 context, people don't understand the metaphor or the thing that it's attempting to explain. So that's why I'm explaining the metaphor first. But please do not get hung up on the metaphor. This is not a biology class, and that's not the purpose of this discussion. The purpose of the discussion is we use the idea of biological reproduction as a metaphor for the relationship between God and the godly soul. That just like biological reproduction is someone taking his own essence and reproducing it, so too the relationship between God and the godly soul is God taking his own essence and reproducing it. So one metaphor we use is breath, coming from his depths, it's coming from his inside. The other metaphor we use is biological reproduction. That just like the son has the same DNA as the father, the soul, the godly soul, has the same DNA, so to speak, as God. It is not a it is, it is not merely a creation of God, which all things are creations of God. It is an expression, a manifestation of God's own selfhood. And that is unique. There's no other entity of which this can be said. So what we're describing here <clears throat> is not just... A, a, a loftier version of the first soul. Okay, so you have one soul that's into self-preservation, and you have another soul that's into spirituality. No, 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 no. 
That's the big misconception. Actually, what we're describing here are two entities which are categorically different, incomparably different. Because the godly soul is not just a drive that's driven toward loftier, more spiritual things. It's not just that it's its goals and its desires are different than the animal soul. It's that the entity itself is essentially different. Yeah? Is this only in the Kiddush? We're described, this, this, we said, V'nefesh hashenis b'Yisrael. So we're describing a uniquely Jewish soul. And in fact, if you ever want to know what Jewish identity is, not how to transmit Jewish identity, that's a matter of halacha. You're born from a Jewish mother, converted according to halacha. But if you want to know what is Jewish identity, it is the presence of this soul. That's all it is. It's not adherence to a religious ideology because there are people who have the presence of this soul and they don't follow Judaism. It is the presence of this soul. Yeah? Talk louder, please. Fantastic question. You are anticipating where we're heading. The question was, if Hashem gives all of His children His DNA, so to speak, and we're speaking metaphorically, obviously, do we all get the same DNA? Ah. Fantastic question. Okay. So, okay. So the question. Let me just re rephrase it, especially on the microphone here. Is you, you referred to a to a, an expression called the pintalayid. Pintalayid is a Yiddish colloquial colloquialism colloquialism which basically means that every Jew, regardless of observance, has a certain essential Jewish identity that will come out when push comes to shove. At any rate, the question was, if I could just rephrase it, if all Jews have this identity, which is the DNA of God, so to speak, um, does that mean that Ultimately, regardless of the way a Jew presents himself or herself in terms of Jewish observance, that ultimately they possess the same spiritual identity. And the answer, of course, is yes. What you're sensing, we're saying, is precisely what we are saying. The answer is yes. However, at the same time, we don't want to oversimplify it. So there is the question, well, if that's so then why don't all Jews present the same? Why don't they all look like the same exact level of observance? So we have to account for that discrepancy. And he's going to talk about this in this chapter, which is essentially how come every Jew ultimately is essentially the same, and yet we see for ourselves, it's undeniable 
that there are different levels of spirituality being expressed by different Jews. It's a real phenomenon, and it requires explanation. And he's going to address it. I mean, we're not going to get into it today because we have like three and a half minutes. But it's a real question. Yeah? On a micro level, the same about a father and his kids, they all get the same spiritual DNA? You're asking about the metaphor. I don't think it's so important. I don't want to, I don't want to perseverate on the metaphor. I mean, uh, do they all get the same DNA? I don't know. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a biologist. I don't know. I understand the metaphor as well as I need to in order to be able to, to appreciate the spiritual concept. The idea here is that there is a basic Jewish identity which is universal. And part two of that statement is that basic Jewish identity which is universal to all Jews is the essence of God. Mamash which means both literally, I'm not, not speaking figuratively, but mamish also means, like I told you at the beginning of class, even in a state of mamashus, even in a physical body. Because you could say, well, in theory, if you're talking in the abstract, yes, every Jewish soul is this reproduction of the godly genetic code. And... Uh, I have to say, kviyachol, so to speak. Obviously, you understand the, the, the words we're using right now are purely figures of speech because we're talking about God who is indescribable. But you could say, oh, this is an abstract concept, but um, it only exists in heaven. It only exists in higher planes. And when the Alter Rebbe adds that word mamish, what he's saying is, no, even here in the world, even in a state of embodiment, if you probe deeply enough, you will find there's a certain basic universal essence of all Jewish people, regardless of how they present themselves. And that basic essential identity is, so to speak, the essence of God himself. Powerful concept. So just... Remember, when we're talking about two souls, we're not talking about two comparable entities who just have a little bit different agendas. We're talking about categorically different entities. Two entities which are completely incomparably different, and yet somehow, we don't know yet exactly the particulars, but we see this is where we're heading, we have to somehow negotiate some livable type of arrangement between these two entities in our bodies. We don't know yet how that's going to happen, but that's, everyone can sort of sense that's where we're heading. You can sense that because that's where we started in chapter one. In chapter one, we started with our conflict. We started with our questioning about our own identity, what's going on with us. And the Altarabic presented the idea of, of the conflict. So now we're starting to appreciate that this conflict is a lot bigger than we even thought. We thought, well, one minute I like pleasures of this world, and the next minute I like doing acts of kindness. And so I'm wishy-washy. No, no, it's much deeper than that. There are two categorically different entities that are both present within the consciousness 
of the Jew vying for control of your life. So this is very deep stuff. This is very, I mean, you could, you could, you could well understand how this could create serious issues. But that's why we're here. That's why we're coming to a spiritual master and we're presenting ourselves and we're being honest about our situation and we're asking for guidance. And this is, there's no quick fix. There's no quick answer. This is part of the process to understanding ourselves properly and then trying to, uh, to manage our lives more successfully. Okay. I don't think I can get any further than this. I want to be respectful of everyone's time. So we're going to just remember, we're, we're stopping before the note. There's a Haggah, there's a note here. And we're going to stop right before that technical note.